This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Charter schools are publicly funded schools that are privately managed. They are expected to inspire innovation and improve many facets of American education. About 7% of all public school children are attending charter schools today, and latest reports suggest that charter enrollments are growing in response to the COVID pandemic when many district schools were closed. As it turns out, the district schools across the country are losing students. The U.S. Department of Education says district enrollments have declined by $1.6 million in just one school year, the 2019-20 school year. And that seems to be persisting in uh, since then, though the official figures aren't yet in. Now, the complaint about charter schools that you hear from a lot of school districts and teacher unions is that they're taking money away from the public schools. And the charter people say, well, that always happens when a child moves from one public school to another. The money follows the child. That's what you would expect. But nonetheless, district schools are worried about losing money and teacher unions are worried about money not being available to pay their employees. So there's been efforts made across the country to keep charter schools from expanding. And in New York City, the United Federation of Teachers has sued the Vertex Partnership Academies to keep it from opening a high school. I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange, Ian Rao, co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies. And he's also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And he's the author of a new book entitled Agency, which uh, is uh, designed to inspire young people of all races to build strong families and become masters of their own destiny. So thank you very much, Mr. Rao, for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Well, Paul, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to the discussion. Well, now, I did notice when I read your bio that you have this Harvard connection. So I thought I would first brag about the fact that Harvard <laughs> has contributed to uh, to your uh, talents. And so uh, where did you, when did you go to Harvard? I graduated, well, I was at, at the business school. So I graduated from HBS in the class of 1993. Well, I assume you got good training there, right? Yes, I, I, you know, it's very interesting. When I went to Harvard Business School back in 1993, you know, the, the term equity was uh, a term that was um, quite beloved. Uh, it, and it's quite a contrast to today. It might be interesting for your listeners. Like when I was at HBS um, and the word equity was used, it was synonymous with the opportunity to have ownership in an enterprise with unlimited potential. Uh, equity was as associated with, you know, the sky's the limit, full of possibility. And fast forward to today, particularly in education, the term equity has actually become more of a zero sum game where we're trying to eliminate inequities and, you know, essentially create equal outcomes by uh, different uh, identity groups. So, yeah, so, so my time at HBS was quite uh, extraordinary and quite uh, full of promise. And the, and, uh, the, but the word equity, I think, from a definitional perspective, um, has shifted quite dramatically over time. Well, you have put your business talents to public uh, service because you have really invested a lot in the welfare of children. Uh, I, I think you, you were involved with public prep 
charter schools originally? Yeah. Yes. Well, well, yeah, again, fast forward, or I guess fast reverse back to Harvard Business School. I worked at Teach for America uh, in the summer in between my first and second year of business school and then did the crazy thing. I went to work full time after getting my MBA from Harvard and worked at Teach for America, this fledgling nonprofit organization uh, that was trying to create a new vision of recruiting outstanding individuals to teach in urban and rural public schools across the country. And, you know, I, I, I did that partly, you know, many of my colleagues said, what are you doing? You just, you just went to Harvard Business School. You should go be working for Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group. And my, my reaction was that when you go to a school like Harvard, you know, business school, it should be liberating not constraining, right? That, you know, you can always go get a real job. So I, I uh, rationalized it to myself. I, you know, this is something I feel really passionate about. I, I, I'm the product of a K-12 public education in New York City. You know, I went to Brooklyn Tech, one of the specialized high schools in the city. Well, that's hard to get into. I have a, a granddaughter in New York City right now, and she's plotting a scheme to get into Brooklyn Tech. <laughs> I don't know if she's going to pull it off or not. She's got a chance. So I, I hope she can follow in your footsteps. Well, you know, they're the, the prior mayor um, was dissatisfied with the number of Black and Hispanic students in the specialized high schools in New York City, including Brooklyn Tech. And rather than strengthen the K-8 to systems so that more kids of all colors could compete or open more great high schools, he was proposing to eliminate the objective assessment that makes it so hard to get into. So I hope that the this I hope that the as much as I you know I hope your your um, your family member makes it. I hope that the stringent standards remain. Um, you know when when they're ready to compete. Well, well, I think the new mayor the new mayor has brought the standards back. Uh, yes, at least yes. in some of the uh, schools in New York City. So. This is a this is a story that continues to unfold. Yes, yes, I'm I'm quite pleased by his uh, his effort there, and and yes, so I did for the last decade. I ran Public Prep, which was a network of all girls and all boys uh, public charter schools, uh, pre K through eighth grade, and it was quite extraordinary. And we had more than two thousand students, almost all low income kids, uh, and almost all black and Hispanic just really fighting for the opportunity to get a shot at the American dream. And, uh, you know, each year we had nearly 5,000 kids on the wait list, you know, just highlighting how desperate families are for a choice, for the, for the chance to get on the first rung of success. So now you have uh, tried, taken on a new undertaking. You're, you're establishing a high school because these, these schools at public prep, as I understand, were elementary schools, middle schools, but not high schools. And I think that's really to be lauded because that, to me, that's the biggest problem with the charter school movement. They aren't investing enough in high schools. And I, I think this is, uh, this is something that you are to be congratulated on. And don't you agree with me that that's the, the, the limitation that we have in the charter school movement today? Well, thank you very much for noting that. Yeah, if you look across the country, the vast majority of charter schools, you know, the highest con concentration is in elementary. And then the second highest concentration is in middle school. 
and a very small percent is in high school. And even those that are at the high school level, frequently they're just solely extensions of the uh, elementary and middle schools. Um, um, you know, so for example, Success Academy or KIPP, um, you know, they've extended their charters from K to eight to K to 12. So you're right, the vast majority of kids, even if you get a great education in elementary or middle school, um, oftentimes you're thrust into the abyss of whatever the heist, the public high school situation is within a, within a particular locality. And that's the same uh, is true in New York, especially in uh, districts in the Bronx and other areas. So in District 12, where we're gonna be opening Vertex Partnership Academies, that's the name of the high school, um, only 7% of the kids that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started ninth grade and dropped out, or they did actually earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading uh, without remediation if they were to go to college. And this, and this is in a city where there's a cap. I mean, you mentioned the opposition from teachers unions. Well, if you wanted to start a brand new high school, you can't do it because, because there's a cap um, blocking the ability of, of sort of educational entrepreneurs to launch these innovative models. That was done by the state legislature, I believe, wasn't it? That was done by the state legislature with a lot of pressure from uh, teachers unions. And so the reason that we're able to uh, launch this high school is that we're simply extending so public prep and another uh, uh, charter school network the Bria college prep they current their charters currently um, went through eighth grade uh, but the state um, approved their ability to extend their charters from k to eight to k to 12. so both public prep and Bria uh, as as the you know as the entities that actually own the charters have now hired Vertex Partnership Academies to run an international baccalaureate uh, high school uh, for the students that were rising ninth graders within those networks. Well, I want to talk about that international baccalaureate in just a minute, but let me first ask you about you know the hardest thing about a high school is finding a building that's appropriate for a high school because <laughs> right. you know that those are specialized facilities and um you, you know they're a little different than an elementary school um so uh now what you've done is you've purchased a a, a, a catholic school building and it's got the name on it a blessed sacrament school so how did you get blessed sacrament school as the building for your uh, Vertex Partnership yes. Academies. Well, le well, let me first say we haven't purchased it. With it's a long-term lease, so um, so we well, we'll be in there a long time, but we have not purchased it. Uh, the the way in which we secured it. Well, first of all, we wanted to be, you know, in the Bronx. We wanted to be in a community that had a really strong need for great high schools. And as I mentioned, in this district only 7% of ninth graders are graduating from high school, ready for college. And as we searched around for properties, 
we came across the Blessed Sacrament School, which is a beautiful campus. I mean, it's about 40,000 square feet. It's got a, a soccer field, a baseball field, basketball courts, parking, uh, a couple buildings. Uh, and yet it had been closed, closed since 2013. And this is the school where Justice Sonia Sotomayor went to school, kindergarten through eighth grade. She was actually the valedictorian. So it has an incredible history, incredible um, uh, presence in the community. But like with like many Catholic schools, it closed in 2013. So it's so been why sitting it closed. Do we do we know why it closed? Well, you know, I think one of the dirty secrets that I, you know, I'm often, uh, uh, you know, others don't like me saying it, but I think part of the success of the public charter school movement has been the, at the expense of, of Catholic schools that were values-based, safe, high academic rigor, but had tuition. And so I think the profile of a Catholic school parent uh, now very much matches the profile of a parent that's interested in a public charter school that's values-based, safe, high academics, but is tuition-free. So I would, I would think that's one of the contributing factors to why Blessed Sacrament uh, did close so many years ago. But you're planned to open this fall. Uh, August 22nd, 2022. August, August 22nd. That means you've got to have all the teachers hired and the principal. Who, who is your principal? Oh, our founding principal is uh, Joyanette Mangual, an, an amazing firecracker. She's... You know, she's been a, a teacher trained in special ed, uh, administrator, just someone who has a very strong vision. And her own personal story is quite uh, inspiring, an immigrant family, very much mimics um, many of the stories of the kids and families in our school. And we've really been able to put together an incredible team of people with experience with the International Baccalaureate model we are fully staffed which is you know knock on wood um something i think uh, a lot of my colleagues can't say fully yet um but we're you know we you know she and i and bill stroud who uh created the baccalaureate school for global education in queens which is perennially ranked is one of the highest performing high schools in the country you know he was the founding principal of that school so we've put together an amazing team uh, to launch uh, Vertex as this, uh, you know, again, we're, we're running it for the uh, charter networks, Public Prep and Bria, who are able to extend so that they can now serve their students in grades nine through 12. Well, the International Baccalaureate uh, is known as the curriculum used by schools that serve the children of foreign service officers around the world. And, that's often thought to be a very demanding curriculum. And so I, I just wanna know why you think that curriculum is the right one for the students that are coming from the Bronx and are probably living in a variety of challenged circumstances. Will, will, will this curriculum be appropriate for them? Well, it's exactly because the perception is that this curriculum is, you know, for the, for the so-called elite or, um, you know, it's exactly for these reasons that we wanted to bring a world-class curriculum to the Bronx and to demonstrate that we can, that all the kids in our schools will be able to compete on equal footing 
What's interesting about Vertex is that it, it's an international baccalaureate model for 100% of the students. Oftentimes when you do see uh, an IB model, uh, particularly in an urban setting, it's oftentimes only for a small percent of the kids. Yes, and I've I, noticed that. In other places where they have, they say they have this curriculum, I find that really it's not what they're using for all the students, but, but you say you're gonna use it for all the students. 100%. And so that means we have a, a wide variety of supports to, you know, we will have kids coming from eighth grade with, you know, some, some with the ability to handle high levels of academic rigor, others that need supports. And so we have a wide range of special education, tutoring, a lot of supports, because we want to make sure every kid can succeed. And the other thing that we're doing with the International Baccalaureate model is that we will have two different pathways. So when I went to Brooklyn Tech, for example, there were 14 majors. And at the end of your sophomore year, you chose. So I chose uh, electrical engineering. So I was an electrical engineering major in high school at Brooklyn Tech. At Vertex, at the end of the sophomore year, each student will be able to choose uh, one of two pathways. Either they can uh, choose the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, which is a more traditional college or university pathway, or they can choose the International Baccalaureate Careers Pathway. And in the Careers Pathway, that's the opportunity that a student can earn an industry credential with labor market value at the end of high school. So and computer science will be one of our first industries, uh, uh, something in media, uh, something in construction architecture, and then something in healthcare. So for example, we're in discussions now with the Mayo Clinic to develop a course of study in phlebotomy uh, so that there'd be an internship that the student would do during their junior and senior year at a hospital uh, in New York and they'd learn to be a phlebotomist. And so they could have a credential. And if they, if they so choose, at the end of four years of high school, they could go directly into working as a phlebotomist if that's what they would like to do. Well, that's a, a fascinating uh, design. Now, that's a little bit downstream because, right, you're going to just have the first year, the freshman students uh, this yes. coming fall. And next year, you'll add the sophomore. Then the next year, you'll have this. That is correct. It is down the road, but it's important that we think about these things because what we'd like to do is that in your sophomore year, you would actually be able to have experiences to help you decide what you would like to pursue at the end of your sophomore year. So it may be that during the sophomore year, you would have some experience going to the hospital that that would be the internship if you were pursuing phlebotomy. Or if you were to pursue computer science, you know, we're hoping to partner with a Google or a Cornell Tech. So we would have some experiences where you could see, wow, do I want to do the traditional diploma pathway? Or if I want to do careers, which career? So it is down the road, but from a planning perspective, now is the time that we're putting all of those pieces into place. Now, this sounds like a very well thought through um, educational uh, uh, preparation that you're uh, conceptualizing and implementing. 
So where does this lawsuit come from? Why is the United Federation of Teachers, UFT, uh, why did they file a lawsuit to try to prevent this from happening? It's honestly, it's very mind boggling. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's very disappointing. I mean, we, we thankfully, we've gotten some very powerful and wonderful pro bono counsel, the team at Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, I think, you know, I think in this case, the unions are trying to do anything they can to stop any kind of charter growth. I mean, there's already a cap on starting brand new charter schools. In this case, this is simply an extension. So again, public prep and BRIA are existing charter networks that uh, prior to this only went through eighth grade and they exercised their legal right and got approval from the State University of New York and the State Education Department to extend their charters through 12th grade. And they have exercised that authority um, and are hiring Vertex to run the high school program for the students in grades nine through 12. Yeah, is, but this is, is in a new building and it's in a, you know, under different management. Isn't this, does this really, you know, doesn't the union have a pretty good case here? No, they don't because the education, so public prep and BRIA are what are called education corporations. Those are the actual entities that, that, um, have been authorized by the state with a charter. And so uh, how those education corporations uh, deploy that charter or deploy the education for their kids is up to them. So for example, uh, uh, when in kindergarten through fifth grade, uh, public prep um, employs a, a, a charter management organization to help run its elementary schools, and then the middle schools are in a completely separate building. It's a, so the, 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 the fact that you'll have an elementary school, a middle school and a high school in three different buildings is not, is not evidence that it's a, a, a new school in the sense of a new school requiring a new charter. So the, the behavior of what's happening with Vertex as what's called a charter management organization that a public prep is hiring to manage its education for a certain segment of its students, in this case, in this case, grades nine through twelve, this is no different than any other kind of charter extension. And and the reason this has been so frustrating is that the State University of New York and the State Education Department spent a long time, uh, really, you know, dotting the i's, crossing the t's, to make sure there is no difference in how this charter extension. Uh, is operating. So it's unfortunate. And, and I do think the union is trying to do everything they can to stop us, but they won't. Um, we are definitely opening on August 22nd. We're going to have amazing families. And, and believe me, <laughs> if our families um, uh, were ever to get the microphone to voice their opinion <laughs> as to what they think of the unions trying to um, stop this from opening, I think they'd get a mouthful. But no, it's, it's not. They do not have a strong case. We filed for dismissal. We're very hopeful that a judge will just simply see the facts and throw the entire case out. But in no, in no the union has no standing, zero, uh, to stand in the way of opening the school. So that's why we're opening on August 22nd. So and we're all yeah, so how do they claim they have standing? Because 
how, how do they claim that they are affected by this uh, this policy? Well, it's a very it, 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 we we've seen the papers that they've filed, and uh, it's we we cannot find it. We we cannot find the quote unquote harm that they're claiming. You know, there, there there is a there is a line in there that says somehow if a charter school opens, you know, public funding is lost to the traditional district schools. But again, charter schools, as you said earlier, we are public schools, and 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 frankly, we're funded at a lower dollar amount than the traditional district school. So there is, uh, so there, there's 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 no evidence of harm, which is which is a big part of our. Uh, uh, dismissal that a the union does not have standing b they have not uh, demonstrated any harm c the state university of new york and the state education department followed all of the aspects of the law related to how charters can be extended so we be, we believe the case will be dismissed if it if it does go forward we will win on the merits. So we well, are quite if, confident. If the harm were there, then you would think the New York City Department of Education would be joining in this lawsuit. Have they expressed an opinion? Do you have anything they are not, to they are not they are not part of this at all. They're not nope, they've they've they have not weighed in. And and again, the New York City Department of Education, we're approved to operate this school in the Bronx and get per pupil funding from the New York City Department of Education. We're, we're slated to get uh, facilities funding from the New York City Department of Education. Everything that, um, the, the entire process of extending a charter is exactly the process that was followed here, which is why New York City has approved it, the State University of New York has approved it, the State Education Department has approved it. The union, in our view, is, is trying to, um, you know, it's a it's a nuisance lawsuit. They know that even the presence of a lawsuit can impede the opening of a school, but we have refused to let that stop us. And we've we're building a great school. And you know, this is again in the district where only seven percent of kids are graduating from high school, ready for college. We're ready to go to battle to make the case for why this is an example of why charter schools are getting the increased enrollments that you talked about at the beginning of this call. Yeah. Well, once, once, you, once, you get the, once the students are in the school, it's gonna be very difficult to close that school down, I would think, but aren't they trying to impose some kind of a restraining order preventing you from nope. opening in the first place? They, they have no authority, they cannot. So that they, again, they have no standing to do that. The state, when, once the government says we've actually approved the ability to run a school, that's who has standing. So that, that's why even though the, the lawsuit will still be hanging uh, on August 22nd, we open. There's no ability for the union to have any constraint whatsoever. It's indicative of the fact that they do not have standing. Well, what do you think are the implications of this for the charter school movement more generally? I mean, we've noticed around the country that unions have been fighting the expansion of charters in a lot of district school systems. The school board uh, have, have also uh, become you know, more resistant to new charter schools. Is, is charter school growth coming to an end? Well, it's something for us to be concerned about when you 
at some of the the federal government uh, moves related to charters. I mean, there's the, the there was the goal to essentially gut the the CSP program, which is which is a program that provides critical uh, funds for new or expanding uh, charter schools. And uh, the current administration was planning to make a significant cut there. There are other rules that would restrict uh, the ability for new charters to get approved. So there's room for concern. Um, we as a sector uh, have to um, get back to our knitting. I mean, during COVID, I think charter schools generally did show a commitment to in-person learning, to be more innovative in the kinds of educational um, alternatives that were implemented during COVID. So I think the sector did um, show itself to be a value, which is why, again, I think we're being rewarded with higher enrollments. But no doubt about it, we as a sector are under assault in ways that we haven't seen in a long, long time. And it may be because of the, the, the large fracture within our society. For many years, uh, charter schools enjoyed bipartisan support. I mean, you know, even when Republicans and Democrats disagreed on immigration or criminal reform or any host of sort of prickly topics, when it came to school choice, there was general agreement that uh, we, can, we can park our disagreements at the door, but we can come together when it comes to public charter schools and school choice. I think the friction that now exists has made it so even uh, charter schools and school choice are no longer a universal um, good. And so I think that is also contributing to why charter schools are facing more headwinds. So I have a copy of your inspiring new book, uh, which has the title Agency. Uh, I know it's got a long subtitle, but I, I think the title is great. It just focuses in on this concept that we all need to become agents on our own behalf. And I know you have a four-point plan for creating agency on the part of young people. So what is your four-point plan? Yeah, well, you know, in my time running schools and working for organizations like Teach for America and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I definitely have gotten a sense of what are the factors that really drive human flourishing? What are the institutions that really serve young people, regardless of race, regardless of class, that give them the best chance of success? And over the last few years, I've really seen the acceleration of what I call the victimhood narrative, where Either young people are hearing that their America is this oppressive nation that based on their race or their gender, their systems are rigged against them. Uh, and so therefore they have to wait for some massive government intervention, or they hear that, you know, blame the victim. They hear that they're the architects of their own failure. They didn't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so what I call the, this blame the system or blame the victim narrative, both are incredibly harmful to young people's ability to conceive their capacity to lead a self-determined life. And so I'm putting forth agency as the empowering alternative, where I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So the question is, 
where does the ability to become morally discerning come from? You know, like agency is like velocity. Velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So my four point plan, I call free, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. Because those are the four pillars that I think if more young people were to embrace what those institutions mean within their own personal lives, their ability to lead a life of agency would be dramatically enhanced. And I'm, I'm happy to quickly go over um, each well, of the four I, I, it elements. It sounds like St. Augustine to me. He would be right <laughs> with you on, you know, you gotta, you have to have the freedom of the will in order to have agency. And you have to believe that somehow your spirit is separate from your body and you can will yourself to go in a particular direction. And I think sometimes we lose that. Yes. Well, I, and well, especially if you're a young person hearing over and over and over again, that actually your free will doesn't matter, that you're boxed into a skin color, you're boxed into a gender, or you're boxed in in some other way. And as a result of that, your opportunities are limited or, you know, or, you know, you're an oppressor because of your skin color or some other characteristic that gives you some privilege, you know, even if your life is the exact opposite of that. And so my belief is that young people, we, we can't, we can't um, solve these issues without some empowering alternative. And so I'm, I'm trying to put forth that a rediscovery of these four elements of family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship may, will make a huge difference. And just to give you one example, in family, it's not about the family that you're from, it's about the family that you form. So if you are familiar with this data around something called the success sequence, that's data that says, if a young person finishes just their high school degree, gets a full-time job of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work, and if they have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials that follow that series of decisions avoid poverty, and the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. That's the kind of information young people, in my view, need to know to help them, help them make decisions when they're trying to decide how to make the passageway into young adulthood. There is nothing like a family that you have created yourself to give direction to your velocity, right? To, to go in a specific direction, that family becomes a, a, a lodestar, something that guides you. Hundred percent. Yes, hundred percent. And uh, and you know these things for many people of certain generations, they'll say, "You didn't need to write a whole book about that," <laughs> you know. But it turns out that in today's society, we have to have the courage to say obvious things, things that we took for granted, like the importance of the family you create. And what that means for the rest of your life, the responsibility that you develop, it used to be the, well, obviously, well, for many kids growing up in society today, whether it be the messages they're getting from mass media or the lack of seeing strong families, even within their, their own neighborhoods, all of this is combining to create a very different narrative 
that young people, in my view, are, are not seeing, or the narrative that they're hearing is much more about uh, a sense of victimization and that have to rely on somebody else to be, uh, to help them craft their life. And, and, I, and I just think that that's kind of learned helplessness that is destructive for the rising generation. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Rao. I appreciate your uh, efforts, uh, both at Vertex Partnership Academies and with your new book, uh, Agency. Uh, and thank you very much for uh, uh, joining me on the Education Exchange. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Have a great day. Thank you. I've been speaking with Ian Rao, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies. He's the author of a new book entitled Agency. Uh, I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.